All right, uh, we're just going to be in mostly Acts 2 tonight. We're still <laughs> in our very slow start. The book of Acts is a lot like the book of Luke, where it's kind of front-loaded. And uh, Luke lays a lot of foundations for the rest of the book in his gospel and in the uh, sequel to the gospel uh, in the beginning, in the beginning of the book. And so we, we do need to spend some time unpacking particularly chapter 2. And uh, tonight I'm going to talk about the, the full gospel. The full gospel. That's a, a term that a lot of Pentecostals use. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that term because oftentimes it seems like presentations of the gospel are lacking one thing or another, depending on, <laughs> depending on who you hear it from. Uh, different traditions, different... Uh, denominations, different personality types, emphasize different parts of the gospel. So I want to try and just bring us to the full gospel. Uh, Really, you could say the very first legitimate preaching of the gospel is where we can find, uh, it's really where we should go always uh, in measuring our understanding and our proclamation of the gospel. This is where we should go. By the way, the Apostles' Creed in, in many ways is just taken from uh, this presentation of the gospel. Uh, most of the elements of the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Most of those elements are found here in the, in the proclamation of the gospel uh, from Peter. So this is a, this is a crucial uh, section of scripture for our study of Acts, but let's be honest, for our existence as a church, for the people of God. This is where the church, a lot of people say, was born. I wouldn't, I don't know, you could say a lot of different birthplaces of the church. Um, but for sure, this is where the Holy Spirit is poured out in the final step of the accomplishment, the accomplishment of God's promises, the fulfillment of God's promises. And uh, that's what we're going to dig into tonight. So I just want to remind us in Luke 24... Verse 44 through 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Um. The promise of my father. Okay, when we think of promises in, in scripture, a lot of times we think about Abraham. Uh, God made his, his covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with uh, David in the book of Samuel. God uh, punctuated his, uh, the history of his people with promises that he was making. And the history of the, of the people of God, the history of Israel, is basically the history of God making and fulfilling promises to them. 
You could almost say the very first promise that God made to his people as it relates to the coming of Jesus into the world is all the way back in Genesis 3. A lot of people call that the very first, they call it the proto-evangelion, which is like the, the, the proto-gospel, all right? In Genesis 3, that's where it says that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at enmity with one another. It just happens to be Genesis 3.16. Sorry, 315. Anticlimactic. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? It says that Jesus took him from Moses. He, beginning, he began with Moses, which is the Pentateuch, and I'm sure he began with Genesis 315 and said, it's about me. This has been fulfilled beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Surely he walked them through the Passover. Surely he walked them through the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which a lot of people equate and and line up with Pentecost. It's about the same amount of time from Passover to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And they see this, they see the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And I think Jewish people actually link Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, with the giving of the law at Sinai. What happened at at Sinai in Exodus 19? The fire came down and the voice was heard and the law was delivered. What happened at Pentecost? The fire came down and the wind rushed in and not a tablet of stone, but God sent the spirit and wrote the law on everybody's hearts, which was part of the the prophetic uh, foreshadowing, the prophetic promise. And so surely Jesus took them through all of that. And so here on the day of Pentecost, these people have been, the people who are together have been brought through the scriptures by Jesus himself. They have been taught that it's all about him, that it's all about the Messiah suffering and being raised. But they're waiting for the final piece of the promise, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they're about, to, they're about to witness, just like they ri- witnessed the Messiah and the resurrection. Everybody okay? <laughs> That's choking hazard over there. Um, that would be very ironic to choke on one of these cups. Um, what were we saying? Hey, bud, just don't put it in your mouth, Okay. We'll listen to the sermon in 20 years and I'll laugh. Who was he talking to? Um, what were we talking about? Oh, just like they had witnessed the repentant, the, uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, they are about to witness the final part of the promise that was there all along. Right? The promise of the Spirit is all through the Old Testament. Okay? And that's really what I want to emphasize about the full gospel. All right? Repentance and forgiveness of sins and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when the day of Pentecost came, by the way, Acts 2 is in three pretty distinct sections. There's the, the event, the Pentecost event. There's Peter's explanation of the event. And then there's the response to Peter's explanation. And then the 
the life that they, that they um, the, the great ending of, of Acts 2, which is the picture of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. Um, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you've heard the observation, interpretation, application of Bible study, inductive Bible study. This chapter really is, there's the event, the observation, Peter's interpretation, and then the application. It's kind of a neat way to, uh, to remember it. So, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Okay, if you go back and read Exodus 19, and even the ending of Exodus, they build the tabernacle, and it says the cloud filled the temple. And there's fire, and there's noise. All right? This is clearly... The same God that came down and touched the mountain, people were afraid. This is the same God coming with his presence. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, and there happened to be, this was during, this was one of the festivals. It says in the Old Testament, three times a year, all your males shall appear before me. There's a pilgrimage, a built-in uh, a built-in gathering, a joint meeting, as we would call it, uh, a built-in gathering three times a year for all the males. And so there were all manner of Jews and, and proselytes from all the, the surrounding area. They just happened to be there together. And this is so cool. The Holy Spirit comes and it says that... Uh, they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it says, how is it that each of us hear each in his own native language? Um, there were uh, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, what are they, what are they speaking? The mighty acts the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now Peter, standing with the eleven. Now this is Peter. We, we've heard him speak one other time in Acts. And that was when he got up and he, he was doing a lot similar thing to what he's doing here, which is bringing scripture to bear on the situation and saying, this is being now fulfilled among us. This is the same thing Jesus did in Luke 4. He stood up, he found the role of Isaiah, and he said, today, this is being fulfilled. This promise is now being fulfilled. Peter did the same thing. He said, hey, the promise that he was going to be betrayed, it was going to be one of his close friends, and there needed to be someone else to take his office. Hey, that's being fulfilled. And now here he is again. Hey, this is what Joel said. It's being fulfilled. By the way, you have to admire the fact that Peter, I mean, the last time we saw Peter in Luke was not a pretty sight. He went out and he wept bitterly because he had denied Jesus. Jesus had said, Satan demanded to have you, right? Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. And when you have turned, and we get the beautiful picture at the end of John of Jesus' reinstatement of Peter, you just feel for him. He stands up among the brothers. What's the first thing he has to do? Fill Judas's spot. Fill Judas's spot. 
Now, he, he was very close to being in the same boat as Judas. You ever realize that? They both denied him. They both betrayed him. Now Peter has to say, well, he went his own way. Somehow, by the grace of God, I'm here, and we need to fill his spot. Luckily, it's not the tent. (laughs) Luckily, there's not two spots to fill. Peter, that must have just stuck with him his whole life. Um, How Jesus allowed him back in. And the first thing he he has to do is fill the spot of the other the other scumbag that denied Jesus and betrayed him. That's intense. Um, I might come back to that. But there's humility, and, and it's Peter standing. In chapter 1, it says, Peter stood up among the brothers. Right? This is what Jesus said. When you turn, strengthen your brothers. When you've been reestablished, you're going to have to take leadership. Right? You're going to feel, because I know you, Peter. You're rash, and you get down on yourself, and you're always, oh, woe is me. You're going to have to stand up, and you're going to have to take control of the situation. You're going to need to fill Judas' spot. When you have turned, you strengthen your brothers. And so here Peter becomes the spokesman. And it had to just, I mean, this had to be the last thing that fleshly Peter would have ever imagined or even had an inkling of desire to do, to become the mouthpiece Right? One of the first things that Luke says about Peter is that he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And then he gets overzealous, and he says, I'm never going to depart from you. And then he denies him three times. I mean, this guy is just beat down. Talk about a, a mental struggle. But it's Peter here, standing among the brothers, standing with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea. And all who dwell in Jerusalem, so he's going to address their error. They said, this is, why is everybody drunk? This is, something wacky is going on here. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is the same thing that Jesus did. This is, this is that. (laughs) I love how King James says, this is that. Peter is saying, this is that. In the last days it shall be. And so this was a prophecy in Joel, part of the promises of God, that there would come an age in which the Spirit was available in ways that it never was in the age of the old covenant, the first covenant. Jews would have had an anticipation and a longing and a hope for this age of the Spirit, where where the law by the Spirit was written on hearts of flesh, where God dwelt with his people by the Spirit. There were just little glimpses here and there of the Spirit in the Old Testament. And there's this wonderful prophecy in Joel, which every Jew would have known, that there's coming an age called the last days, When the Spirit's going to be poured out, it's going to be like a downpour of the Spirit. Not a little trickle here and a trickle there. But it's going to be on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on servants, male servants, female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This was a hope. This was the hope of Israel, that they would, that this day would come. It's the hope that we get glimpses of in the beginning of Luke's gospel, in the person of Zechariah and Elizabeth, in the person of Simeon and Anna. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for this time. Now, they didn't understand what it would look like, which is why they were all confused by, first of all, Jesus, the shape of his ministry and his life. They didn't understand that, oh, that's what that was talking about. And it's the same thing here with the, with the coming of the Spirit. Oh, oh, this is what it's talking about. <laughs> this is what it looks like when the Spirit comes. And so now Peter begins to, to proclaim the gospel. This is the gospel. Men of Israel hear these words. And this is, this is where every proclamation of the gospel should start. Jesus of Nazareth. This is about Jesus. In our, in our presentation of the gospel, we have to be very clear. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is not about you or me. It's about Jesus. Now, Jesus has implications for you and for me. But the gospel is not about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Let's start there. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He was a man, and he lived in history, and he did amazing things. You saw it. This Jesus, now he keeps coming back to that. This Jesus, this one. And we always need to remember that our presentation of the gospel is not our Jesus. It's not the one that we prefer If we're not proclaiming this Jesus who did these things in this way, we're not proclaiming the gospel. You can proclaim a Jesus that's not this Jesus. And many do proclaim a Jesus. Jesus himself said, many will come in my name and say, I am he. Don't follow them. You follow the ones that have seen what I do and are proclaiming to you the truth. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew all along what he was doing. This is what it's always been about. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even though God did it, even though it was by the purpose of God, the men who killed Jesus still have agency. (laughs) They still have uh, guilt in the matter, as do all of us. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there's the coming of Jesus and his death. God raised him up. There's his resurrection. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is another trip back into the Old Testament to explain what's happening, to explain Jesus. And this is Psalm 16. It's a great psalm. 
And more than once, it's referred to as a psalm that prophesies the resurrection of the Messiah. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. Listen, this was a psalm of David. Well, David's dead, and we know where his tomb is. So he clearly wasn't talking about himself. He was clearly talking about himself as the Messiah, as a type of the Messiah. And he understood that the Messiah, the eternal king, the one who's coming and whose throne will have no end, he's going to be, well, if, if it's going to be an eternal kingdom, well, then there must be no death to that king. That's going to be an everlasting kingdom. David, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, there's a promise to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... There it is again. It's this one. This historically uh, existent man. Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. All right? The Jesus, Peter proclaims, he's not the only one who's a witness. There's lots of witnesses. We are all witnesses of this Jesus. And so again, in our proclamation of the gospel, if there are not many witnesses to the Jesus you're proclaiming, you are not proclaiming the correct gospel. That's why our experience of Jesus is not the gospel. Your experience is your experience. It could be a wonderful experience. It's not the gospel could be your testimony. It's not the gospel, right? Your testimony can lead to a proclamation of the gospel, but it's not the gospel because the Jesus of the gospel is a Jesus of whom there are many witnesses of what he did and what God did in his life. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. There again, the the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promise. The promise. A lot of times we think of the promise of the Old Testament. The hope of Israel is salvation. That one one day God will come and, and be able to forgive our sins, which is part of it. But the ultimate, the final step of the promise, this is why we're talking about the full gospel tonight is that, yes, God does that. He does come, and a major aspect of the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins, right? We remember the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus. All of that is pointing toward the coming of the Spirit. He has poured out this that you are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, 
But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, both two very significant titles, Lord and Messiah. Those were two titles that Jews would have held very deeply. Right? God is Lord and uh, he is sending the Messiah. Well, this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. This Jesus, there it is again. It's this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? All right, now the Holy Spirit has taken a hold of this message and has penetrated the hearts of the people who are hearing and they're cut to the heart. There's conviction. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? There was a baptism of John for the repentance of sins, but this is the deeper baptism that John was pointing toward. And again, this is a similarity with Luke. Uh, Acts opens up with um, John's baptism giving way to Jesus' baptism. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the beginning of Luke, Jesus' ministry begins with the baptism of John giving way to the baptism of Jesus. Repent, that is, turn, change your mind, change your direction, change the direction of your mind, okay? And be baptized. That is a cleansing, but then also an initiation, a raising up. Right? Baptism is symbolic of a, of a burial and a resurrection. And it's initiation into a different kind of life. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? Do you see how he said that? Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's very important that we understand the way that he said that. It's not repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins, which is often how we preach the gospel. It is a gift. That's not the full gospel. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins is not the end. Forgiveness of sins is the means to the end. The end being the Holy Spirit, not as an experience, but the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. God wants to dwell with his people. He hasn't been able to because our sins made a separation between us and God. God has dealt with sin. He's dealt with the separation so that now he can come and draw near and dwell with us again. That's why the Holy Spirit is such a significant part of the promise. It's God's heart to be with his people, to walk with them, to dwell in us. That's why there's forgiveness of sins. That's why there's sanctification, so that God can come and be in his people. Does that make sense? It's not so that we can all of a sudden be now good people. It's so that we can be with God. 
and be united with God in his presence. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. On Sinai, God got really close, and all through Exodus 19, you hear the people there are scared to death because the presence of God is here, and if we touch it, we're going to die. God has dealt with, with that problem and now wants to come down in the fire and in the power and in the terrible fury of the Lord and be in his people. And he can because once we repent and we're baptized, we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so the promise of presence, the promise of the Holy Spirit is now for everyone who will repent and be baptized. Amen? And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pentecost is the feast of the ingathering, right? And it's pretty clear that this was the fulfillment of that feast, right? The harvest has come. Now, they devoted themselves, right? This was not just a revival, this produced a life. They devoted themselves, and the, this devotion is, is a steadfast commitment. It's an unchanging direction. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I'm sure a lot of that teaching had to do with how the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. The same teaching that Jesus was doing with them while he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, while he was opening their minds to understand the scriptures, they devoted themselves, wow, this changes everything. You mean we live in the period of time where this is that? <laughs> we need to learn more about this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Why is that? Because Jesus, who did many wonders and signs, is in them and with them. And working through them. This is Jesus now being able to uh, have a much greater reach. He said in John, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go, I can send the helper. And greater things than these will you do. Because I go to the Father, he says. This is the promise. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds we talked some about that last week. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, <clears throat> Pentecost is the final stage of the fulfillment of God's promises. In Luke 1 through 4, there's this great sense and this great response from anyone that the angel comes and announces the birth of Jesus. There's a sense that now he's beginning to fulfill. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. And now these promises, these covenants, he has remembered them and now he's beginning to fulfill them. Well, this is the same thing in the beginning of Acts. 
that God's still fulfilling promises. He's still, and this is the final one, that his spirit, and this is what it's kind of all pointing toward, that now the Holy Spirit can be poured on all flesh. Now the presence of God can dwell with man. There's that great verse in Revelation when the, when the heaven comes down into earth. He says, at last, finally, the dwelling place of God is with men. This is what we've always, this is why we created the garden. This is why we had the tabernacle as a provision. This is why we had the temple. This is why we had all these dwelling places of God, ways, all these ways to set up for God to be able to, to in a veil and in a once a year and a, to sort of kind of meet with the Spirit of God. And Jesus died and the, the curtain was torn in two. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was just on all flesh. God could do that because the Messiah suffered and died and was raised and was exalted and then poured out his Spirit. So, the gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment, is the, is the fulfillment of God's promises. All the promises of God are fulfilled by Jesus. And what that means for us is that we can now live the life that we were created to live if we repent, which means stop living and turn from the life that we've created for ourselves repent and be baptized, die to that old life. And as we do that, we receive the forgiveness of sins so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us. That's the gospel. The end goal is oneness with God, is being filled with his spirit. The spirit isn't like the cherry on top. The spirit is the Sunday. Okay. The Spirit is what God was working toward. He always wanted His Spirit to be in everyone. From the moment that, from the moment that there was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, from the moment that God was forming man out of the dust of the earth and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, this is what God was always doing. And this is the wind that filled the room, and this is the fire that filled everybody. Who was there. It's what he's always wanted to live and dwell in his people. So we often, often the climax of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. But forgiveness of sins just means, okay, the necessary arrangements have been made. Now we can live life. Right? We don't live. The fullness of life is not, my sins have been forgiven. The fullness of life is being filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? And that's the full gospel. That's what Peter was proclaiming. Later on, he, he kind of, he preaches it in, a, in similar ways over the next few chapters. But he says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. From the presence of the Lord. Repent. Let God deal with your sin. Understand why the Messiah had to come. Why he had to suffer and die. So that. So that. Times of refreshing may come. 
from the presence of the Lord. So the promise, the promise that God was fulfilling, and Luke loves to highlight where God is fulfilling his promises. The promise is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's forgiveness of sins so that God can dwell in us by the Spirit. Amen? The other thing I want to point out by way of of particular application, and some of you may need to hear this, all right? is that God keeps promises. God keeps promises. And I wonder if all of us really relate to him in that way, as the fulfiller of promises, as the one who has a 100% track record of keeping his word. In the beginning of Luke, you have two, two people that uh, are aware of, of this about God, that he keeps his promises, um, but who respond in very different ways. Zechariah, God says, hey, I'm going to do this. And he says, well, how, how is this going to happen? How am I to know this? And the angel says, well, okay, you're going to stop speaking until the child's born. Mary, she has questions. She says, how will this be? But God senses somehow in her total trust, total trust in his ability to do, even if it sounds strange, to do what he has promised. Zechariah, his song comes later. But he says this. um, um, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Wait a minute. You're a priest of God. In fact, this whole thing started, this whole nation of Israel business. This whole thing started when there was an old guy with a wife who couldn't have a child. (laughs) What are you talking about, Zechariah? My very first promise to this people that I fulfilled was that I'm going to give you a son out of a barren womb. How are we still questioning that I'm a fulfiller of these promises? Mary says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel explains it. Nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary says, sign me up. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, if you say it, I got no further questions. You saying it is as good as it being done. And this is the heart that God said, all right, I can bring the life of Jesus into the world through someone like that. Let it be to me according to your word. So she rejoices. And the the culmination of her song is, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, Abraham and his offspring forever. 
He's fulfilling his promise. He is fulfilling his promise. And everybody who understood what was going on when Jesus came said, God is fulfilling his promise. We have the apostolic witness as the confirmation of God's fulfillment of promises. And I still think that some of us may wonder, well, how's God going to do that? How's God going to bring me to the place where I can really bring glory to him in my life? How's God going to fulfill his calling? He's called me to this church. He's called me to, to, to love the people here. He's called me to make disciples. But I don't know if he knows who he's dealing with. He's dealt with worse. He can bring to pass what he says. If he commands something, behind every command of God is a promise that he is able to bring us into that. And this is why, this is why it's connected to the Holy Spirit. This is how God can accomplish everything that he calls us to because he's, his ultimate fulfilled promise is to send the Holy Spirit. So, We live in the age now, as Peter said, it began on Pentecost. We live in the age of the abundant availability of the Spirit. We live in the age of the abundant availability of the Spirit. It's been fulfilled. We're not even wondering if God is going to send His Spirit. He did. We live in this age of the abundant availability of the Spirit. We need to put that in our gospel and preach it. (laughs) The Spirit is available by the forgiveness of sins, by repentance and baptism. There are conditions, but this this is wonderful news, that our age is not the age of waiting for the fulfilled promises of God. Our age is the one of acknowledging, of looking back, and proclaiming the fulfilled promises of God. All right? He fulfilled all of his promises. And the ultimate sign of that is the sending of the Spirit. So, that's what, that's what Peter is preaching here. That this Jesus is now in all of us by the Holy Spirit. And he's dealt with whatever needed to be dealt with in order for that to be possible. And now times of refreshing can come. And it's, it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It's for everybody who the Lord calls to himself. Let me say it one more time. We live in the age of the abundant availability of the Spirit. I don't think we realize that. That we don't know We don't know dry times. We don't know spiritual darkness in the way that some of the Old Testament prophets did. The very same prophets that said, but God still knows a way out somehow. It's still going to be sent. He's going to send his spirit. But man, what are we doing right now? We don't know spiritual darkness like that. 
we live in a flood of the Spirit. It has been, people have been doused with the Spirit and poured out. And so if we struggle to kind of realize, well, how is God going to do this? We need to understand who we're dealing with. The challenges to our faith are just these, these little minuscule things. If we would just remember, not what God has promised, but what he has already fulfilled. Amen? So I want to stir us up. Eager anticipation, right? We're called in these days to pray, wait on God. We're not waiting for him to kind of sprinkle a little spirit. Oh, please just give us crumbs. No. 2,000 years ago, he went, and it's been like that ever since. If we'll, if we'll see it, if we'll live in it and receive it and have faith and walk in it. Amen? If we, if we really believe the gospel, that the good news is that the Spirit can now live in us. God's made all the arrangements, and he can do it. Will we, will, do we live in that gospel? And do we proclaim that gospel? Amen? So that's the, that's the full gospel. That is, for the rest of the book, that's what the church is going out and taking to the ends of the earth. Hey, this is who Jesus is. This Jesus, this is the one. And here's what you need to do because of it. And here's what will happen when you do. That's it. That's taking the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? And every sermon from here on out, you'll see some kind of variation of that. I love Paul's. You can compare it with Paul's in chapter 17, 18 in Athens. He doesn't, it's not nearly as, he's not appealing to the implicit knowledge uh, of Torah in the way that he is here. But he's, it's the same elements. Hey, it's this guy, this man, Jesus. God's going to judge everybody by him. And uh, you have an opportunity to repent. He, he commands all men everywhere to repent. But it's, it's the same elements in the gospel uh, that, that's preached. All right? So just to underscore a couple things that I said as I was walking through chapter 2. Number one is that... Um, we need to proclaim this Jesus. Right? Not a Jesus, this Jesus. And not just our experience of this Jesus. Okay, now I'm not saying your testimony is invalid. I'm not saying your experience is invalid. I'm just saying that it's not the gospel. The gospel is what the apostles proclaimed here. The gospel is that Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures and there are witnesses and it really happened. (laughs) That's it. That's the gospel. God broke into history and his name was Jesus and he did this, this, and this and this is what that means and this is what God had said all along in his scriptures to his people. That's the gospel, all right? Um, Okay, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the times of refreshing. Thank you for access, Lord. Thank you that you are a faithful God. You're trustworthy, that you fulfill your promises. You are faithful. And God, I pray that you would um, just give us a zeal for your gospel. Give us a deep understanding and appreciation of it, a deep boldness 
to proclaim who you are, this Jesus. Give us clarity in our hearts as to what the gospel is. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to separate it from our emotions, separate it from our experience, that we would just be so crystal clear as to what the gospel is, that we would be able to proclaim it uh, at any given time, in season and out, God. Whether we feel good, whether, we, whether we're stoked up about it or not, but that the gospel would always be on our lips and on our minds, and that we would be able to call people, everyone that you are calling to yourself, Lord, that we'd be able to call them to receive the promise, to receive the times of refreshing. Lord, I thank you that it, it's for us, too. It wasn't just for a small group of people in, in Jerusalem on that day. That because, because your people have gotten a hold of the, the gospel, or we are here in this room calling upon your name, Jesus. And we ask, Lord, in these days that you would send the Spirit, that we would live in the Spirit, that we would live in the accomplished giving of the Spirit. That's a historical reality, God. And Lord, that your name would be lifted up because of that. That you would be glorified. And that uh, day to day, you would add to our number those who are being saved. In Jesus' name, amen.